Hello and welcome to this edition of Privacy Laws and Business podcast, Privacy Paths. I'm Helena Wotton, data lawyer and correspondent for Privacy Laws and Business and host of this episode. In this episode, we'll show how the UK Information Commissioner's Office Sandbox is working after the end of its first year. And we'll be speaking to one of the first cohort of companies who've had experience of the Sandbox. So what is the sandbox? Some might say it is a safe environment where organisations can develop their products and technologies under the guidance of the ICO. The ICO has described the sandbox as a process which supports its participants in developing new and innovative products and services, which demonstrates public benefit in an environment where they can explore ideas outside of conventional tech and privacy norms. So I very much look forward to speaking to a senior member of the ICO about the sandbox today. So we'll be exploring how the sandbox works. And for those organisations who might be thinking about putting their products into the sandbox, will be good to listen to. So what can companies and the privacy community learn from the experience of one of the 10 companies which participated in the Sandbox in the first year? Well, today I'm delighted to be joined by three speakers. Chris Taylor, Head of Assurance in the Information Commissioner's Office, the UK Regulator of Data Privacy. Neil Cohen, Director of Privacy at Onfido, one of the first cohort of 10 organisations in the Sandbox, and our very own Privacy Laws and Business CEO, Stuart Dresner. Thank you for joining me, guys. So in September 2019, PLMB report featured a front page article on the experience Onfido had in the ICO sandbox. But to start, I want you to have the opportunity to introduce yourselves and explain your role in relation to the ICO sandbox. So maybe, Chris, we can start with you. Sure. And uh, good to good to speak to you all today. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Uh, so yeah, so I'm I'm one of ICO's heads of assurance. Um, I look after a range of our activity that you could broadly call supporting upstream compliance, if that's not too much of jargon. It's the kind of stuff we do that's about trying to achieve compliance at, at source before we get anywhere near things like enforcement action. So I look after our regulatory sandbox. Um, I also look after some of our core guidance products, so our guide to GDPR. Um, we've had a new product out recently called the ICO's Accountability Framework, and that sits with me. Um, and there's a few other bits and pieces I've got as well. I look after our work on electronic identity uh, and trust services, if that's an area that, that people that are listening are, are aware of. Um, so, yeah, lots of things. Yeah, wow. It sounds like a busy a busy role um, and the best person to have to talk about the sandbox. So thank you for joining us. Uh, and Neil, um, what's your experience of the uh, sandbox? What's your role in relation to that? Uh, yeah, so um, thank you again for having me. Uh, I'm Neil Cohen. I'm on FIDO's uh, Director of Privacy and a Technology and Human Rights Fellow at Harvard University's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Um, and so in the sandbox, uh, I, I took on FIDO into this, uh, you know, this really what I, what I think is quite a, a wonderful experience where at Onfido, we are a remote biometric identity verification company. So what we do really is we enable our business customers, our business clients to help them prove the identity of their customers. And as we're all living through such 
difficult times of you know self-isolation, what's happening in the world with COVID, we find that this is quite a vital service and it's powered with artificial intelligence and it uses biometrics. And so in, in building this technology and working with the product teams, uh, we just encountered a number of really unique privacy challenges. And so when we learned about the sandbox and the opportunity to engage with the regulator in a positive way to try and find a way to, to build this technology, which we think provides a public good, uh, and do it in a way that is not only respectful of privacy, but provides privacy benefits. We just saw that as a, uh, a great opportunity and wanted to participate. Great. Thank you very much. And, and Stuart, it's good to have you here. And I know oh, you'll be uh, interested in asking questions oh, yeah. of both Chris and Neil, um, one of your topics um, at the center of what you're looking at right now is the sandbox I'm sure so yeah. so Neil just to start with you you've you've told us a bit about Onfido's facial recognition and the identification software what was your motivation for entering into the sandbox with your uh, software yeah so what Onfido does at a high level is quite simple but there's a lot of complexity to that if we kind of think of the experience someone might have when you walk into a pub or a bar, or maybe when you're opening a bank account and you need to prove who you are, where you'll present your identity document and the person who you're presenting to will look at it. Is it real? Is it fake? What do they observe? And they'll look at you. Are you the person pictured on it? Do you own it? Our technology uh, does that in, in a digital sense. And we use facial, uh, facial recognition technology to do part of that. The comparison of uh, a selfie or a video of a person's face to that what's pictured in the identity document. But facial recognition technology has a lot of complexity in how it's built, how you amass the images needed to train the models, how you ensure those models are fair for everyone. If it works you know, one way for me and a different way for someone else, that's really not okay, particularly when we're seeing this type of technology be used as a gateway service. And that's only going to increase as time moves on. But to address these challenges, to address bias in the technology, you have to do a lot of things that aren't necessarily intuitive and present uh, complexities in the product, complexity for privacy, such as trying to measure where bias exists. You need to define cohorts of individuals uh, to see how the technology is uh, responding to them. So the chance to go to the ICO and speak with them about these challenges that we want to make this product better, make it more fair, but this is how we do it. These are our options in the technology. These are the levers we can pull. And, and what do you think about that? It, that created an environment to have a conversation that I don't think is happening in many places. Uh, and it's one that we've embraced. Yeah, thanks, Neil. And, and Chris, to bring you in, obviously, um, you are in charge of the Sunbox. What, what was the aim of the Sunbox and, and how did you choose Onfido and the others to be the initial cohort, cohort? Sure. So, I mean, the idea, I can't certainly can't claim credit for the idea that goes back to our innovation and tech strategy um, from probably three or four years ago now and actually comes from developments in regulation more broadly, uh, in particular, many of your readers or readers, listeners, readers, whichever, um, will be aware of the Financial Conduct Authority's regulatory sandbox and a general need 
both for all regulators, but specifically for a regulator like ICO, to really be able to show that they both understand the challenges that innovators have, that they are able to practically work with innovators that are trying to do things that are in the public benefit to help bring those innovations to life. Um, and also that we are we recognize that in many cases where there is innovation, regulatory certainty just isn't there, um, particularly if there isn't case law or if we're dealing with particularly new um, new areas where, where law hasn't been uh, entirely, entirely established. So the Sandbox was a, a mechanism by which the ICO could deliver its help deliver some of its broader ambitions in relation to innovation and technology. Um, it sits within a broader set of activities we do to support innovation, but it's one of our it's one of our key key mechanisms for doing that. We have a, a thing that our commissioner likes to talk about a lot, which is making sure that we demonstrate that innovation and privacy can can go hand in hand, can go together. Uh, and the sandbox is very much, um, very much in that space of trying to trying to make sure that we can demonstrate that. And I know I mentioned at the outset, and this may have um, made hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's a safe space. Is is that entirely right? Or how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, Neil can Neil can maybe uh, observe how safe he has felt um, <laughs> during the process. But it's it, it's a phrase that we often think about at ICO because of sometimes what the unintended uh, interpretations people might have of that as a, as a phrase. So we can't, as people will be aware, ICO doesn't, we don't waive any of the, of the legislation or any of the rules uh, for anybody that's in the sandbox. We do have some, um, as we do with any organization, we have some flexibility over how we enforce against uh, the law. Um, and participants that are in the sand sandbox get some comfort from our comfort from enforcement. So I think as Neil's touched on, you know, there's a an opportunity for us to have a dialogue with organizations about areas that are challenging and it is only reasonable therefore that ICO provides a degree of comfort to those organizations that if something happens or if something goes wrong in the process then we won't we won't move immediately to enforcement action um, so there's a nuance around the wording of safe space basically yeah yeah that's true and Neil turning to you how safe did you feel when you were in the sandbox no uh quite safe um you know, if you kind of look historically uh, at the engagement between companies and regulators, and this is not about the UK or the ICO, but broadly around the world, it can be an antagonistic environment at times and combative about, you know, what is an organization doing and then how is that being enforced? This is something quite different. And I couldn't stress enough how important it is, the, the mutual trust between the participants and the ICO going into the sandbox. Of course, the ICO can't waive its duties to enforce privacy law. It, it has a statutory mandate. Uh, it has to do these things. That's not going to go away. But I, I think there's a mutual understanding that if both parties come with the right intentions, trying to provide an end benefit, trying to do good, um, that you can work together and find the right outcome. But that requires almost a leap of faith uh, in a way, which can be very uncomfortable for organizations at time, particularly when it comes to the law and we like to have things to be very well-defined. We like risk to be very well-defined. And much of the success in the sandbox is based on honesty and trust and mutual understanding, which isn't always well-defined. Yeah, Neil, can I just intervene with a question here? Um, 
I can see that you as the privacy lawyer uh, developed confidence in this arrangement. Did you have any trouble persuading top management to give you the go-ahead to, to enter this sandbox? Um, there's always going to be a measure of resistance for, for these sorts of programs. And what I think they come up in two ways. One is what is the impact on the resources of the company? So, so here we're, we're talking about building product, innovating with technology. So that, of course, implicitly is going to involve the product teams, the technology teams, and for Onfido and our work in the sandbox, uh, the research team. Um, so, so what is the impact there? And the other is what I was commenting on a moment ago is how can this go wrong? What are the risks? And I can explain to, to senior management what it's meant to be and try to provide comfort. But there is that leap of faith that we're saying, you know, the ICO is empowered to do something. They are empowered to enforce, but that isn't the intent. The intent is to find a positive outcome. And so I, I think younger organizations, maybe starts at times, who are more willing to take this leap. And maybe it can be more difficult for larger institutions. Uh, but I'm hoping that in laying the groundwork and going through this first uh, cohort of companies that we can prove the benefit and other companies will engage because uh, I really do see this as a positive, not just for the organization and the ICO, but for the people that are exposed to these technologies. I think that's a really good point, if I may, just on the on the, on the end here. We're, we're, as a regulator, you know, one of our first considerations has to be outcomes for the public and where there are clear innovations that are in the public interest, where there are huge benefits to the public of resolving issues like bias. Um, for us to be a good regulator, it is much better for us to be in the space of how do we get a good regulatory outcome? How do we get that public interest outcome to be delivered in a way that is compliant? just as it is important for us to enforce against the law, being able to intervene and get involved early on to enable things to to be compliant with the law is, is an equally important function to us. And the mutual trust and understanding is is a huge part of the basis of that, of the kind of approach that we take. And that was a common theme amongst the, the, uh, the 10 um, companies in the sandbox, for example, getting through Heathrow Airport quicker with the facial recognition um, programme. And uh, that's certainly for the public good. And anyway, over to you, Helena. It, it sounds. Thank you, Stuart, and and thanks, Chris and Neil. It, it sounds like a learning experience on, on both sides, really. I mean, Chris, how did the ICO respond to it? Any lessons learned, or what? What did you take from the um, first ten, from the cohort? Yeah, lots. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. And actually, it was it, it was funny listening to Neil talk then about the kind of a kind of. Uh, leap of faith and some of the issues that that you'd explain there that, you know very similar to actually the kind of considerations we have to have as a regulator have we got the resources will we be able to support these things um within the ico having the kind of confidence and the faith and the understanding of how these op how these new kinds of regulatory mechanisms can actually work actually not dissimilar to considerations to imagine organization would think about in coming in the sandbox we had in terms of trying to create the sandbox in the in the first place um We've got a, across the 10 organizations that came into the sandbox, there's quite a high degree of variety of the kinds of organizations we're working with. Everything from tiny little startups through to some of our biggest government departments. 
um, and on a very, very wide range of issues, everything from the kind of stuff we've done with Onfido through to data sharing in the context of violent crime in, in London through to, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another good one, <laughs> the stuff we're doing with the highways uh, and, and, and tonic analytics there. So a huge variety of different types of organizations, different ways of working. And all of that variety is really helpful for us as a regulator because we need to practically understand how personal data is used in innovation. And to have that insight into all these different ways of working, different innovations is hugely beneficial for us in developing our in developing our regulatory regulatory approaches. There are loads of lessons we've learned in terms of how to do this and that we'll be thinking about as we go forward. But I can talk forever about them, so I'll, I should probably stop there for a moment. It's very interesting, especially for those who are thinking about entering the sandbox, perhaps in the next kind of cohort, which we'll, we'll come on to that. Um, Neil, how has participating in the sandbox led to changes in design or, or the interface with users on your with your technology? Um, you know, lot, lots of improvements, lots of changes uh, on Fido. You know, we're a B to B company, a business to business company that that's building these complex. AI technologies, and because we're business to business, this makes us a step removed from that uh, the end user, the data subject, the person exposed to the technology. And, and working through the sandbox, we had we went in, w- of course, w- with our own views as to what we might do and how to address these issues. But then having the opportunity to participate in workshops with the ICO to talk through these issues in depth. We got to go to the heart of some of our fundamental questions about how do we get information to this person whose data is going to be used when we don't even have a relationship with them. We don't have an account with them. And, and, and so we began thinking about these issues. Uh, we thought about ways to empower our clients, ways to, to, to make information more available, more transparent. And I don't think it's something that, you know, is fully done. And I think a lot of work when it comes to technology innovation, it, it's never really done. We're always in this cycle of iteration and learning and improvement and changing. And I think this is part of that journey. While the sandbox has a begin and an end date, I think the overall journey of, of product and privacy and technology is one that exists as a perpetual mechanism that must always continue to improve and evolve. So to what extent, Neil, that's really interesting because technology evolves and our experience of technology evolves and what's necessary for life evolves. What do you expect in terms of continued contact with the ICO sandbox team or or any contact with the ICO in the future? I think similar to any time two organizations are working together, are collaborating with one another, you begin to learn about each other. You begin to learn about each other's strengths, each other's weaknesses, where you can provide benefits. And in doing that, as we were speaking about earlier, you also begin to trust one another. And so I I think it identifies opportunities for for organizations to provide future input to the the ICO, to the regulator, at the same time to ask questions. When you know the person at the other end and you can say, what do you think about this? You have a dialogue. You have a means of engagement. Um, And I don't think there's any expectation that there is some sense of future involvement, but there's this human level to this relationship that can't be denied. 
Chris, please, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, the sandbox as a defined service is a is a moment in time and, and is bounded by a start and an endpoint and an exit report and a set of things that we do across that. But um, just as we do with organisations outside of the sandbox, you know, we have we talk to organisations, we try and be a, a fair, pragmatic. Um, my language sensible regulator that balances you know quite rightly balances all of the issues that we're trying to balance and has regard to the needs of organizations the need of innovation the need to comply with the law and across all of our activity we have to have dialogue because you know again putting it very bluntly we don't have all the answers sat in an attic in macclesfield or in our office in wilmslow we we have to go out and engage with organizations particularly when we all know personal data is everywhere in every in every sector, in every type of innovation. So, for us to be credible as an innov- as a regulator, we have to we have to do these things, and it's an important part of our work. Yeah, thank you. I'll always check my loft and attic for <laughs> answers. Um, but um, so, if you were encouraging new joiners to the sandbox, Chris, how what would you are you in, are you encouraging new joiners? What's the position at the moment? Yeah, we are. We are. We've just got to an interesting stage with the sandbox. We called it our beta phase, our pilot, however you want to describe it. And we had ten organisations with us, and the majority of those are drawing to a drawing to a close now. Um, we've had um, two that have exited so far. We've got another three or four that will be exiting in the next um, in the next few weeks. Um, there are another two or three that are some of our public authorities and bigger government departments. Whereas I'm sure. You and your listeners all, all appreciate they they had a lot of their work pause because of the COVID nineteen situation, so they've had extensions. But anyway, long story short, that means there's some space in the sandbox for probably around four or five organisations, depending on the size of the project. Um, and actually, one of the learnings that we've had in terms of us operationally delivering the sandbox is that we think we will get um, we will leverage more benefit from the sandbox if we narrow slightly, not not massively we narrow slightly the focus of the types of things that we use the sandbox to address um and that we make sure that that's really tied into ico's operational priorities going forward so we're really interested in organizations that are innovating in two areas one is um supporting safe and effective innovative data sharing because we know that data sharing is a recurrent theme across many many areas of innovation um, and again we see the sandbox as playing an important role in supporting safe and effective data sharing um, and then the other area that i know your listeners will be will be familiar with is we've got a lot of work we're doing around age-appropriate design and uh, children's privacy and again there's lots of innovation happening in that space and so we think it's appropriate that the sandbox is a mechanism that we can use to look at the innovation that's going on in that area so for people out there that have got products and services in that space then yet we are at this moment, as it were, open to open to uh, expressions of interest. And how do people go about that? How do an organisation approach? Yeah, yeah. Um, with the, as with everything on the sandbox, we're really uh, transparent about how it works. Um, there's full details on our on our website. Um, there's an expression of interest form that people can fill in. Everything about how the sandbox works is on there, down to the terms and conditions that we ask people to sign up for, lots of FAQs about things like commercial confidentiality, freedom of information, all the kinds of queries that people might have about working in the sandbox. There's a huge, huge amount of information on the website about how it, how it all works. Great. Thank you. Um, Neil, I'm conscious that we're coming to the end. If there, What else would you like to say in terms of your experiences um, working with the ICA? I would just say that uh, to organizations that are thinking of, of joining, uh, 
there are, of course, you know, there are the risks that we've talked about. There's tremendous benefits to it. Um, but be optimistic. It does take that leap of faith. The people on the Sandbox team, my experience has been they're very good people. They are looking for that positive outcome. Uh, there will always be, you know, that little uneasiness or fear that you're engaging with a regular. There's a body that can sanction you, can find you. But the, that is not the objective here. The objective is that positive outcome. And if you have that in mind, if you are genuinely trying to work collaboratively, you're trying to learn, just as the ICO is trying to learn, you, you, you can really do quite impactful work. And it's one of the best places to do that. Uh, but it really does require going in with the right mentality and maintaining that um, like anything. Um, yeah. I was going to say, how long would the, the early discussions take before a company or the, indeed the ICO makes a commitment? Is it like some initial discussions around a month or so like that? Um, like, like a lot of things at the ICO, uh, you're taught on day one that the answer to most questions are, uh, it depends. Um, and, and it does. Um, so as you can imagine, we've, we've been open to new applicants for, for a few weeks now, and it very much depends on what the project is and who the parties are that are involved, the extent to which they meet the criteria. We've got some internal decision-making processes that we go through, um, and we're going through those at the moment um, in, respect of some, in respect of some applications. Um, we try and move it through fairly quickly. It'd be a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up now. Um, but before I do, I want to say thanks so much to Chris Taylor and to Neil Cohen and to Stuart, of course, for this very interesting discussion. Uh, so thanks very much. Before we finish, Helen, I'd just like to say that uh, you mentioned right at the beginning that we published an article on, on FIDO um, last September, and we can make that available to anyone who's interested. It gives great background to the steps leading towards the sandbox. We could send that to anyone who's interested if they just email info at privacylaws.com, and we'll send them a copy of that article, indeed the whole report. So I just wanted to get that in before we finish. Thanks, Stuart. And we can we can put that in the um, in the show notes as well. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you very much to Chris and Neil for your time today for this really interesting discussion and look forward to seeing who's going to be in the next cohort in the uh, in the sandbox. Um, so yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. Do subscribe to our channel and if you'd like to sign up for the PLMB reports, that's available on the website at privacylaws.com. So look forward to uh, speaking to you all again soon. Thank you, Helena. Thank you. Thank you.